Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Plants and animals that they encountered that they had never seen before. And one of the animals that they found that no, no European had ever seen was this very peculiar mammal that was really easy to catch because of how sluggishly it moved through the jungle canopy. In fact, this particular animal's unhurried pace prompted naturalists to give it a name that was based on the Portuguese word for slow. That's what they kept calling it. It's the slow one. And that was like the noticeable characteristic that kept standing out to everybody who encountered this animal, all of the folks who were studying this animal for the first time. In fact, in 1749, a French naturalist described these furry little creatures and said, slowness, habitual pain, and stupidity are the results of this strange and bungled conformation of traits. These sloths are the lowest form of existence, he said. One more defect would have made their lives impossible. And when he called them sloths, he was using a French word that meant slow, just like everybody else had used to describe these animals, even the people who were native to Central and South America. In their own languages, the words that they used to describe this animal was those are the slow ones. But it also happens to be, that word also happens to be one of the names of one of our seven deadly sins. And thanks to descriptions like the one from that French naturalist, we now know this entire group of animals as the slow ones, the sloths. If you ever saw the Disney animated movie Zootopia, you probably remember the comical depiction of the workers at the Department of Mammal Vehicles. Zootopia is a movie about a modern city that's inhabited by talking, cooperating animals. And at the DMV, all of the customer service workers are sloths who are working as fast as they can. Only their version of fast seems really slow to everybody else. And that's the reputation that sloths have everywhere. In virtually every language, the name that people use for that animal is, those are the slow ones. But that, that name, that name sloth, it's the only name in all the animal kingdom that also has a place on that list that we've been talking about, the list of the seven deadly sins or the seven capital vices. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, I need to explain to you that we're in the middle of a series of messages, a series called Glittering Vices. And in this series, we're pursuing a better understanding of the items on that list, that, that list of the seven capital vices or the seven deadly sins. And this is a list that you won't find in any one place in Scripture, although all of these topics are discussed and addressed in the Scripture. But this was a list that was developed by communities of Christian leaders years after the scriptures were written down. And this list was developed because Christian leaders were noticing that some of the 
some of the patterns that they would see over and over of people who were trying to be disciples, trying to be followers of Jesus, they would struggle with the same kinds of things. Like people had very similar struggles across the board. And so these Christian leaders started to take notice of what some of the common struggles were. What are some of the pitfalls that people run into time and time again? And in fact, this list is not comprised of actual behaviors. It's a list of destructive desires. We're talking about the kinds of problems, the kinds of habits that can poison your soul, the kinds of habits that can sabotage your life. That's what this list is all about. But I'll bet, I'll bet that if I was to poll everybody who's listening to this sermon and ask you, would you name for me the top Issues, the top risks, the most serious vulnerabilities for your spiritual life, I'll bet that none of us would be inclined to put sloth in the top seven issues. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, with all of the terrible decisions that humans are capable of making, logic tells us that maybe laziness is not all that serious comparatively, that it, much less that it's a deadly sin. But this morning I want to explain to you something that I hope is going to change your perspective. This morning I want to explain to you how the traditional definition of sloth means something completely different than what we think of when we hear it. What those early Christian leaders were talking about when they talked about sloth was something different than what the little slow animal represents for us. And when you hear what the deadly sin of sloth is really referring to, I think you're immediately going to recognize it as something that crops up in your own life on a regular basis. I think you're immediately going to see that it's something that's a real threat to you spiritually too. You know, the scripture has a lot to say about laziness and work ethic in some very key locations. In the Proverbs, in the Old Testament, there's this book of these wise sayings, and you'll find repeated instructions in there about how people who are lazy really ought to kind of wake up to the world. They really ought to reconsider their passive approach to life. Proverbs describes how a lazy person is like someone who buries their hand in the bowl and then doesn't even bring that hand to their mouth. Can you imagine going out to a Mexican food restaurant with somebody and they bring the chips and salsa and the person sitting across from you dips the chip in the bowl and then just stops and doesn't lift it the rest of the, like this has not ever been a problem, problem for me ever. But I mean like that, that's, that's pretty lazy, you know, like that's, that's pretty listless to be able to just stop in mid dip like that. But, but Proverbs addresses people that have that kind of severe laziness in their life. Proverbs would tell somebody like that, pay attention to the world around you, engage, it's for your own good. Proverbs even says there's insects like ants that find ways to contribute to their community and store away food for the winter. So don't, like, you want to have more ambition than an ant, you know? That's what Proverbs has to say. And the scriptures have instructions in the New Testament, too, about people who are, who are lazy in their approach to life. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament has words of advice for Christians in the first century, and he encourages them. He says, make it your goal, make it your ambition to live a quiet life, a peaceful life, and to work with your hands and provide for yourself. And I don't think Paul was giving, a, giving them a command from God. I think he was giving them practical wisdom. 
spiritual advice that would make their own lives better. That's how the Scripture addresses the issue of laziness. Scripture offers wisdom about taking initiative, being responsible, trying not to be a burden on other people. And we like that kind of advice. We like that kind of wisdom. I mean, that sounds very American because American society rewards people who are industrious, rewards people who make every attempt to try to pull their own weight. In fact, I know people who are so conditioned by that line of thinking, so conditioned by that American virtue, that for them, asking for help is like the last thing that they ever want to do. I know people who think asking for help, that, boy, that's their greatest fear is having to depend on somebody else. And that's all part of our work hard cultural mindset. And for most of us, for most of us, when we hear that there's a sin or a vice that's called sloth, we immediately think, well, yeah, that means laziness. And because of the cultural water that we're swimming in, because of the environment we're in, we can also think, well, sloth's not ever gonna be a problem for me. I mean, quite the contrary. I'm like the busiest person I know. You should see my calendar, right? Like this is what we're thinking to ourselves. Sloth's not going to be my problem. I can hardly keep up with the demands of my life as it is. I'm working full time. I got a side hustle. I'm trying to put the kids to work, you know, like I'm always looking for ways to be more efficient. My calendar is way too full for me to be slothful, we might think. But I want to tell you this morning that when the early church leaders who identified sloth as a vice, when they talked about this, they weren't talking about inactivity. They weren't talking about just being lazy and coasting your way through life. They weren't talking about idleness. In fact, and this may come as a surprise, the early church leaders would say that slothfulness might lead you to fill your calendar with frantic activity. Slothfulness might turn you into an extremely busy person. In fact, sometimes the busiest of people might be the ones who are wrestling with sloth the most. Because in the early Christian definition, sloth doesn't mean doing nothing with your life. Sloth means spending your life avoiding or delaying what you really ought to be doing. It's not about doing nothing. It's not about just constantly binging Netflix. Like that's not what the early church leaders were talking about. They were not talking about being inactive. They were talking about shirking the duties, ignoring the things that are most important for you to do. They would have said sloth prioritizes what's convenient over what's important. Sloth prioritizes being comfortable over being stretched. Sloth says, I'm in this for me and what I'm feeling. One way of saying it is that sloth is when you become comfortable neglecting the most important relationships in your life. It's when you become comfortable saying, ah, my, my desires, my comfort, my enjoyment is the first priority. And the truth is, busyness and work and activity, you can use those as excuses to neglect the things in your life that are the most important, which is why I'm saying for this message, we can't associate the sin of sloth with just sitting around. Because when we do that, it lets busy people off the hook. It lets busy people say, that doesn't apply to me. And the reality is sometimes the busy people are the most slothful people.
people. Sloth doesn't necessarily mean you're unwilling to work. It means you're unwilling to work on what's most important. You're unwilling to work on what you should be working on if that work makes you uncomfortable. And those early Christian leaders who taught and wrote about sloth would say, sloth is being lazy about love. It's being lazy about love. Now, some of that's still kind of convoluted. I've been reading a book to work my way through this series from a Christian philosopher named Rebecca DeYoung. And her book is fantastic, and she offers this illustration to help people wrap their minds around what sloth looks like day to day. Here's what she says. She tells a story. She says, picture a typical husband and wife, and in general, they have a relationship of genuine love and friendship. But one evening, they quarrel at dinner time, and they head off to opposite corners of the house for the rest of the night. They find it much easier to maintain that miserable distance and alienation from each other than to do the work of apologizing, forgiving, and reconciling. Learning to live together and love each other well after a rift requires giving up their anger, giving up their desire to have their own way, giving up their insistence on seeing the world only from their own individual perspectives. Saying, I'm sorry, takes effort. But by effort, we don't simply mean that they have to walk across the house and say the words. Saying, I'm sorry, takes emotional effort, spiritual effort. And likely they see this most recent disagreement as just another wearisome rerun of the same thing they've been fighting about for years. And it doesn't feel like they're getting any closer to resolving it. So what's the point of going through the motions of apologizing one more time? She continues, do they both want the relationship? Yes. Neither one of them wants to undo the commitment that they've made to each other. But do they want to do what it takes to be all in on the relationship? Do they want to honor the relationship's real, sometimes tedious, daily claims on them? Do they want to learn genuine unselfishness in the ordinary daily task of living together? Eh, maybe tomorrow. For now, at least, each spouse wants the night off to wallow in their own selfish loneliness. Their lackluster response, it feels, I'm sorry, their lackluster response is especially tempting when love takes an unexciting effort or when expressing it feels like a dull formality or an empty ritual. Sometimes they even shirk efforts that aren't terribly taxing, like simply looking up from the distraction on their smartphone and greeting their spouse coming home from work. As time goes on, they progressively neglect the small ways of turning toward their spouse in love because such gestures become inconvenient or tiresome. They never seem to make much difference anyway. Now, I don't know if you can relate to that at all, but I bet you've seen it play out in other people's relationship before. I bet you've watched movies where this happened, where two people have a disconnect they have a rift in their relationship, and they choose to focus their attention on distractions. And the distraction could be anything. It could be work. It could be a hobby. It could be managing the children and their activities. It could be volunteering at church. It could be any other number of things, but the distractions become the easier way. The path of least resistance. The, pa the distractions are easier than what needs to be done. And what's really happening is that these two people are neglecting the more important things, the more urgent things, the harder tasks of reconciliation and forgiveness 
and acting with humility. And we can distract ourselves with busyness. And all the while, we can allow what's more important, our relationships, to suffer. And the more distractions that are available, the more easy it is to find ourselves avoiding the thing that's most important. And my life is full of distractions. So there's a moment in the letter to the Romans in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is trying to talk to people about how to live out their relationships. In fact, he spends like the first major portion of the book working on all these heavy theological arguments, but he does all of that to build up to the practical arguments of the last part of the book. And in Romans chapter 12, he gives this long list of instructions about not just coasting by in your relationships. I want to show you some of these verses, but I want to invite you to open up this part in the Bible for yourself. These verses will be up here on the screen, but if you've got a Bible or if you have a Bible app or if you have the Heritage app on your phone, you can open it up and just click Bible. It'll take you directly to this passage. After we're finished reading these verses, I want you to be able to see them all together as a block. Because in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, here's what Paul has to say about being an active participant in our relationships. He says, love should be shown without, without pretending. Hate evil and hold on to what's good. Love each other like the members of your family. Be the best at showing honor to each other. Don't hesitate to be enthusiastic. Your translation may say, never be lacking in zeal or passion for this cause. Paul says, be on fire in the spirit as you serve the Lord. Be happy in your hope. Stand your ground when you're in trouble. Devote yourselves to prayer. Contribute to the needs of God's people and welcome strangers into your home. Bless people who harass you. Bless and don't curse them. Be happy with people who are happy. Cry with people who are crying. Consider everyone as equal and don't think you're better than anyone else. Instead, associate with people who have no status. Don't think that you're so smart. Don't pay back anyone their evil actions with evil actions, but show respect for what everyone else believes is good. And if possible, do the best of your, to the best of your ability, live at peace with all people. Now, I want you to look at that entire list of instructions from, chapter, from verse 9 through verse 14. And I don't know how all of those instructions land on your heart and your ears, but when I read that list, it sounds ambitious to me. It sounds challenging. It sounds demanding. If I was to follow all of Paul's instructions here, it would require so much emotional heavy lifting from me. It would require so much spiritual energy, so much relational investment. He's talking about being proactive in your relationships and not just with the people that you like. I mean, remember, this Romans, it was a letter that was written to a church family. So you can imagine somebody standing at the front of a gathering like this and reading this letter from Paul. And Paul's giving them instructions about how they're supposed to live together. He keeps using language like love each other, which means he wants them to be proactive about their relationships in the church. And then he also mentions being on fire in the Spirit, serving the Lord, devoting themselves to prayer. And so Paul's talking about being proactive, not just in their horizontal relationships, but in their vertical relationship with God. 
Paul's like, you gotta, you gotta engage. You gotta be active. You gotta be committed. You gotta be a part of all of these relationships. And all of that sounds really nice. It sounds so utopian on paper. But you know, and I know, that relationships are hard, aren't they? People are complicated. Relationships are difficult. And relationships with people are even more difficult and more demanding. They run into trouble. Relationships run into trouble that requires attention. And you could say that same thing about a relationship with God. I mean, a relationship with God is demanding. It requires attention. It requires time. It requires effort and engagement. It requires a lot. And so sometimes, sometimes in all of our relationships, our horizontal relationships and our vertical relationship, sometimes it sounds easier, feels easier to just coast. You know, to just let, let life happen. Sometimes it sounds more comfortable to just distract ourselves and make ourselves busy in order to avoid the challenging, uncomfortable, vulnerable work of real relationships. And that's what sloth looks like. That's what sloth is. Sloth is a spiritual laziness about loving God and a spiritual laziness about loving other people. Sloth is when you just sit back and disengage from the relationships that God has placed in your life. Now, there's a huge theme of this series, something we keep coming back to time and time again, talking about spiritual transformation, or to use a really churchy word, spiritual sanctification. And when we talk about these seven deadly sins, we're talking about the natural default habits that humans fall into, the pitfalls that people land in if we just follow our own instincts. But what we're learning together in this series is that God has a plan for your life's transformation. That God has a design for changes that he wants to make in your life. God has plans for making your life and your relationships better and more meaningful than you've ever imagined. In fact, Paul, the same one who wrote this letter to the Romans, in a different letter, he said, the one who started a good work in you will stay with you to complete the job by the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul's trying to say, God began a process of transformation in you, but God is still at work. It's an ongoing process of transformation. But what you have to understand is that God's process of transformation really is work. Did you see the word he used? The one who started a good work in you. Which means it's not just simple or easy or quick. It's not instantaneous. The process of God transforming your life is an ongoing process. It's a continually being rolled out kind of project. This is something that happens your entire life after you decide to follow God. And God's inviting you into this process, but it's not like magic. It's more like surgery. God's offering a, a sort of a heart transplant for you. Replacing your heart with a heart that's like Jesus's heart. But it's a procedure. It's invasive. It's demanding. It's tough. You know, it was five years ago this month that many of you here in our church family prayed with me as my dad was preparing for open heart surgery. 
And I can remember going down to Houston and being with him in the pre-op and during, you know, waiting in the waiting room and being with him after the surgery was over. And I can remember all of those doctors coming in and they had to all agree, here's the procedure we're going to do today. Is everybody on the same page about all of these different details and all of that kind of stuff? And as I was watching that happen, I kept noticing how courageous my dad had to be. How brave he had to be to be able to tell these doctors, yes, you have my permission to put me to sleep and to cut me open and to do what you need to do to replace part of my heart. And it was so courageous to go through that, but then, and, and he slept through the whole procedure, thank goodness, but then after the surgery was done there, I saw him laying in the bed and he's got the, he's, he's intubated and he's got the tubes and all of the different wires that are connected to him. And as, as he was regaining consciousness, I was thinking about how brave he had to be and how committed he had to be and how much effort it was requiring from him, not just from the surgeons, not just from the anesthesiologist, not just from the nurses, not just from the staff there at the hospital. It was requiring effort from him to be a part of this process. And then he went through months and months of cardiac rehabilitation, and he had to stick with it. He had to keep going. He had to keep saying yes to the difficult process of going through that heart surgery, even though the surgery itself was already done. He had to keep saying yes. And sloth is when you say no to God's offer to change your heart. Sloth is when you say, that looks too hard. Sloth is when you say no to the transforming work that God wants to do in you because you're not comfortable with it. You're more comfortable where you are. Sloth says, it doesn't look like that's worth it. I don't think it's worth it to go through the difficulty. I don't think it's worth it to go through the pain. I don't think it's worth it to go through what's challenging about that. Sloth is when you say, God, I know you have a plan for my life, but I don't accept the plan. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a caterpillar that decided that building cocoons was too hard? Building cocoons takes a lot of work, you know, like that's challenging. And so the caterpillar says, I'm not really interested in that process. That's not really my cup of tea. That's not really something I'm interested in doing. The caterpillar says no to doing their part. They're, they say no to engaging the process. And as a result, the caterpillar misses out on what God has in store for them, the transformation that's possible because they're comfortable where they are. And somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, we've gotten this idea that the spiritual journey is supposed to feel comfortable. And I don't know where we got that. I don't know where we got the idea that walking with Jesus was going to be a comfortable process. We certainly didn't get that idea from Jesus himself or from any of the apostles. But sloth is when you realize that what God is asking you to do might be challenging. It might demand humility. It might demand vulnerability. It might demand discomfort from you. And because of that, you say, no thanks. Sloth is when your inner desire for comfort comes up against God's desire to change who you are. In fact, Paul said that very same thing, Galatians chapter 5. He said, a person's selfish desires are set against the spirit, and the spirit is set against one's selfish desires, as if to say there's a battle going on between what we want and what the spirit wants. 
They are opposed to each other, Paul says, so you shouldn't do whatever you want to do. Problem is, I really like to do what I want to do. I really prefer to do what I want to do. And so there's this daily decision, this daily question that I have to answer, this daily fork in the road that I come to where I have to decide, do I want my way or God's way? Do I want my life to look like my design or God's design for me? And every single day I have to answer that question. But there's beautiful news here, and the news that we have to share, the good news of Jesus is that we do not have to earn anything from God. All we have to do with God is put in the effort to make ourselves available. We have to say, God, I want you to do this work in me. I've got another passage of scripture I wanna share with you before we wrap up today. Second Peter chapter one, written by one of Jesus's closest friends, Peter, who knew what, you know, like Jesus brand wine tasted like from the wedding at Cana. Peter, who had taken home a box of the leftovers from the feeding of the 5,000, the loaves and fishes. Peter, who knew what it was like to be drowning and suddenly have Jesus reach down and pick you back up. Peter, who knew Jesus so personally, he wrote these words and he said, by God's divine power, the Lord has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need, we already have for life and godliness, he says, and we have it through the knowledge of the one who called us by his own honor and glory. Now, I know these can be run on sentences, but what Peter is trying to tell us is God is not asking you to do something that God hasn't also equipped you to do. By his power, we already have what we need for life and godliness, and we got that through Jesus. And the next verse says, through his honor and glory, Jesus has given us his precious and wonderful promises so that we can share in the divine nature. Now that, that's a big theological phrase, but sharing in the divine nature, it just means we can live into what we were designed for. We were made in the image of God and we can live into the divine nature, the image of God for which we were created. He says Jesus has made this possible and he's made it possible for us to escape, at the second half of this verse, to escape from the world's immorality that sinful craving produces. All right, Peter is casting this big vision, painting this big picture, about what's possible because of God, and then here's where he says, but here's your part. He says, this is why you must make every effort. You must try. And we're not talking about trying to earn your salvation with God. Peter's writing to Christian people who have already passed that stage of their spiritual journey. Like they're walking with Jesus. They're on the journey. They've already committed. They've already been saved. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who are trying to grow. And he says, you must make every effort. You must try to add moral excellence to your faith. And to that, you have to add knowledge. And to that, to add self-control. And to that, to add endurance. And to that, to add godliness. And on and on, to add aff affection for others and to add love. He keeps making, I mean, he could go on and on with this recipe. There's all of these characteristics of the Spirit that we've got to continue to add to our life. But here's what Peter wraps that up with. He says, if all of those things on that list are yours, 
if you make the effort to let God instill all of that in you, put all of that in your heart. He says, if those are yours and they're growing in you, then that will keep you from being inactive and unfruitful. That will keep you from being slothful. It'll keep you from being lazy. It'll keep you from being stagnant. It'll keep you from being inactive and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if in the morning when you have that choice, is today going to be a day that I design or that I let God design? He says, if you choose to let God have his way, if you, let cho if you choose to let God work on your heart, he says, you're going to become active and fruitful. You're going to live into the design for which you were created. You're going to live into the divine image. You're going to be what God intended you to be. And so how will you answer that question? You know, when I was growing up, there was a hymn that we used to sing in church. We don't sing it anymore, but it's, it's embedded on my heart. One of those songs that I've sung so many times I could never forget it. And the name of the song is, Let Him Have His Way With Thee. The chorus says, His power can make you what you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and make you free. His power, I'm sorry, His love can fill your soul and you will see that it was best for Him to have His way with thee. And it's an invitation. It's an invitation to say yes to God.